Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. I hope and trust that you're doing well today. Um, It is a Tuesday as I record this and I know that it is a public holiday in Zimbabwe. So if you're listening from Zim, shout out if you're listening on Tuesday uh, because I know it's been a long weekend and everyone is kind of, I guess, in that dread mode to go back to work tomorrow. However, if you're out of Zimbabwe, I also welcome you and hope that you're having a great week so far. Um, I will not take up too much time as I usually try not to with interviews because, um, you know, the interview is the most important thing. Today I am joined by the incoming director of policy.org, which is a really great organization that does a lot of work around uh, data, gender, um, and focuses on research quite a lot. So I think you'll find that a very enriching conversation with Irene. I'm really grateful to her for giving me this opportunity to interview her. The first interview she's conducted as the new director of policy. I'll just mention as well, if you're interested, next week, Monday, the 21st of August, I will be speaking on a very interesting panel where we will be discussing the future of uh you know, social impact communications on social media platforms with a focus on X or Twitter as we knew it, threads and TikTok. So the title of this panel is X, Threads and TikTok Text, Navigating What's Next in Social Impact Comms. Now, if you didn't know, TikTok has now introduced um, a text-based uh, way of posting onto TikTok as well. So we'll be discussing a little bit about all these different developments that are happening in the social media terrain. Um, my fellow panelists include Gabriela Mikiewicz, who is uh, from the Channels Network, who which is coordinating this panel. Uh, Darren Cavani from Comms 2.0 and Teresa Litza of Teresa Litza Marketing. And Eloise Amari, who is from Poetry to Your Ears, Nunu Media. So that will be a really fascinating talk. You can find out more about uh, the whole panel or um, just to get a little bit more information about how it's going to work out and what time it's going to be at um, by just looking on the socials of the Native Podcast, the Digitally Native Podcast um, at Native Podcast on Twitter, as well as on LinkedIn, the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungai Machirori. Um, there is a LinkedIn uh, link that uh, will allow you to join the, the, the event and you will get more information about the exact details, um, the, the external link to, to the online session as and when um, they are put up by the Channels Network. All right, here we go. Let's listen to Irene. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. Uh, Today I have the great honor of interviewing for the first time in her new role as the Executive Director of Policy, Irene Mwendwa. Um, I will not try to introduce her. I like to let people introduce themselves because they know themselves best. So thank you firstly, Irene, for joining the podcast um, and congratulations on your new role. Um, And yeah, please do introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you. 
Thank you, Fungai. Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. I'm a big fan. My name is Irene Mwendoa. And I think from my accent, most of us can tell I'm a Kenyan. I'm a lawyer by profession um, and an activist and now uh, turned tech activist, I would say. Um, I've been working uh, on women and girls issues in Africa since I was about 18 years. And wow. both formally and informally in terms of joining different movements without even necessarily knowing, just from reading in the papers, just from listening to news uh, in the media here in Kenya. So you've told us a little bit about your professional self. Can you tell us something that's personal, that's, you know, like your, your little passion that's not your work, not a little passion, you know, let, we like to call things we do outside work little passions, but then sometimes they are big passions. So let me not call it a little passion. What do you do outside of, you know, working to fight for the rights of women and girls that's just about Irene on a weekend or after hours? Many people are not, don't know this about me, but... Uh, based on the work that I do, I get to meet different people. I get to go to different places. And mm -hmm. the one thing I do whenever I go is visit a market. Mm. I, love, I love thrifting, whether it's antique, ah. whether it's fabric, whether it's clothes. Um, so uh, police is based in Uganda. Whenever I'm in Kampala, mm -hmm. I always go mm -hmm. for a week. It's one of the biggest mm -hmm. uh, second-hand markets in Africa. Uh, in Kenya, I live next to the second biggest market, so I'm always there. I, I thrift for anything. I thrift sometimes for my family, for my friends, babies. I just, for some reason, I just enjoy it. It's so therapeutic. And it's really nice that it's somehow connected to what's, what is your professional passion, which is, you know, women... Um, and women's empowerment. And I think, yeah, you know, women are empowered in so many different ways. We sometimes think of women who work in the markets as not as, you know, sophisticated, quote unquote, as women who work in offices, but the work that they do, you know, the the, the labor, the effort, it's it's exactly. really something amazing. And, and I just want to, you know, get into thinking a little bit about your professional space from that. I mean, you've been with policy for a long time now. And you were, you know, previously in, in a capacity as the Strategic initi Initiatives and Feminist Movement Building Lead. What was that work about? What, how were you working to work towards feminist movement building from that standpoint? Wow, Fungai, that role came about from policy's research. Uh, mm -hmm. So policy is uniquely placed in Africa for being a feminist civite yeah. whose approach is research. And we research on how women and girls um, use technologies, experience technologies. And inadvertently, we're able to collect data that reveals how governments, tech companies, the private sector, academia, and the society at large prioritize women's needs on technology and the internet of things. Right. So as policy was addressing some of this work through research, especially on African women in different countries, and uh, when they got onto the dissemination, they realized that as we are disseminating, there are different partners who program on different issues and their uh, their. Um, there are partners who would be useful in terms of 
um, supporting the dissemination of the research. And they mm -hmm. ask themselves, how do we fill this gap or how do we build this nexus of engaging civil society actors, engaging governments, engaging private sector, engaging the big tech companies, engaging legislators, those are elected mm -hmm. officials. And this opportunity arose uh, mm -hmm. where there needed to be stronger networks and stronger movements to advocate for the best interests of women and girls on data, on gender data and technology use. Yeah. So out of that, then the, the role of feminist movement building was, of course, um, created a policy as well as strategic initiatives where we needed to understand even as a feminist civic tech, how can we also enable other women rights organizations in Africa and in, in our countries start thinking of implementing projects that touch on technology and data because data and technology cannot be programs on their own. They are also embedded into other societal issues such as public health, education, yeah. um, national uh, disaster reduction, food uh, yeah. and nutrition, other issues yeah. really. So the, yeah. uh, this role was, um, you know, was an opportunity for policy to engage with out of the ordinary stakeholders to help mm -hmm. them understand that technology is not standalone. It's not just for techies. It's not just yeah. for experts, yeah. but it's um, an area that needs to be embedded in our daily lives, in our daily development work, and in the case of women's rights issues, as a tool of advocacy and as a tool for change, especially in the wake of the pandemic, as we saw when COVID-19 um, arose in 2020. Right, and it's also got a, a role to play for the women in the market that you've you know, spoken about. You know, everyone is somehow connected technologically at this exactly. point, that's something exactly. really interesting about how policy operates from a feminist civic tech perspective. Um, yes. Now, you know, feminist standpoints on technologies can be different. You know, some people, um, depending on which kinds of feminisms or branches of feminisms you 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 buy into or are a part of, what would you say is, you know, the overarching feminist principle or values that policy approaches data and technology? So when it comes to our work, some of the, some of the policy principles, I mean, feminist principles that we apply definitely are along the feminist internet principles. These include you know, things to do with the design of the internet. Right. Because uh, all this affects how we shape or our future looks like. One of my previous guests on the podcast, Chennai Che, who I know you would know, um, talked a lot about, you know, feminist approaches to data and how, you know, we have to think about not just the use, the consumption, you have to think about how the technology is built and by who and for whom. And so it, it would seem that that's sort of where policy comes at its feminist understandings or underpinnings of, of the internet. And I don't know if that's, if that's an accurate assessment for you. Yes, it is. That's the same, or I can say some of the tenants we use in terms of the feminist principles of the internet. And mm -hmm. there are 17 principles in total. Of course, uh, as you have shared, um, 
they are clustered in five and they span across access of these internet and technologies, uh, mm -hmm. movement, who are, who are engaged in the design, in the selling, in the productivity, the economy, of course, expression and embodiment, especially for women. Um, and aim to provide really a guidance for organizations like ourselves as a feminist CV tech to articulate and explore issues around data and technology better and with clarity. Mm. And in terms of what we also look look at for as a feminist CV tech in Africa, we are biased, obviously, because we are Africans, and uh, we are also biased because we know African women from the get-go, from the past, were innovators of different in technologies which are not recognized or which are not, are not considered as conventional technologies, but we understand that they are the yeah. first invented a lot of what we use today uh, in our societies to make our lives easy especially yeah. around fuel, especially around our economies, especially around our access and movement, mm -hmm. and also around um, embodiment of our lives, really. So we highly rely on Afro-feminist principles, which distinctly seek to create uh, theories and discourses, which, of course, cover our diversities as Africans and our mm -hmm. experience, and reclaiming those histories, as I have shared, uh, mm -hmm. of women, especially black women, uh, while also challenging the forms of structures such as patriarchy, colonization and colonialism and capitalism, which then came to define how we should um, recognize wins and successes in our societies and also mm. how we recognize challenges. So those are the two areas that I can say we really lean on in terms of um, our research and our work as a feminist civic tech. And those are what we organize along and program along as we continue to build our communities of practice. Great, great. And I think what's really interesting as well to pick up on is that, you know, not only are you um, a feminist, an organization using these feminist principles, we are seeing it in the transition that you've made um, from your, your previous director, Nima Ia, uh, into your transition as the director. And, you know, you, you were working within policy already. Now, you know, we've seen within feminist spaces this kind of movement um, recently of, um, you know, intergenerational shifts where um, older feminists are, are stepping down from from positions of power to allow younger feminists in so that, you know, there's this kind of intergenerational renewal of ideas and, you know, of leadership. But what yeah. I find really interesting is that yourself and Nima are not, you know, from a different generation. You're from the same generation. Um, and and yeah. to have an organization successfully transition from one uh, person to another can be very challenging. Um, but then to have it happen within you know, this feminist space of people of the same age is also quite interesting. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that process and, and you know, how, how you went about it? I think it would help other people who might be struggling with transitions as well. Um, so I'll start us off by saying that we are not the first and to mm -hmm. recognize that we are just fulfilling some of the wonderful steps of transition and change management organizations have already uh, 
done in here in Africa and our countries. So we're just following in their footsteps and recognizing that it has been done, it can be done, and it will be done. And in following those footsteps, then we asked ourselves, of, of course, hard questions. Uh, and our founder, Nima, of course, even as she was, you know, developing and coming up with policy, she knew in her heart of hearts that I would love for other people to take charge and lead this wonderful organization into different directions and to share the opportunity of leadership as much as possible because this is what enables different ideas to thrive. And it mm-hmm. also that sustenance of um, women continuing to be leaders because we want to see as many women as possible becoming leaders. The other thing I would speak on is it gives that narrative of, you know, there are founders who stay on for too long that, no, it's not every founder who stays on for too long. It is possible to set a goal and timelines and it is very possible to stick by them. Uh, All this based on, of course, um, the intentions of the founder and the board's uh, direction to the founder of uh, an organization or a social enterprise, because this is very common also in social enterprises. Uh, Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll speak about this is to also recognize that um, in a generation where if you don't do this, then you will, so many things will catch up with you, even as a founder, because there are new ideas, there are new technologies, there are new regulations by governments, by tech that really demand that we shift and change as a society and change as the development world altogether to really embody uh, that strong leadership structure where you need to pass the baton, you need to ensure that many people also get the same opportunity that you've had as a founder to lead an example, uh, an organization, for example. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it's very powerful. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the work that policy does. Um, am I correct in saying that you have a strong focus on research? And if I am, can you tell me why that is? Wow. So our approach, you know, as you choose approaches for your work as an organization, as a company, as an entity, you must always find the best approach that suits the needs, the current needs that you're trying to address. And the approach we took is research. Uh, I shared earlier a bit that um, this was created out of the little resources available on how women and girls, specifically women and girls in Africa, use technologies and further how women rights organizations organize using technologies. Uh, Mm. And as we start um, trying to evidence and trying to historicize um, the use of technologies uh, by women and girls, we found, of course, a lot of things along the way, such as how the design of these technologies does not accommodate some of the work that women rights organizations and African women and girls are doing. Uh, because if you look at languages online, for instance, most African languages are not fully online. We know there are select languages that are fully online which continues to limit how people participate, use, and challenge these these technologies, for instance. So in putting out research, a policy, we find ourselves as a leader or a thought leader in shaping and guiding some of the designers of the incoming innovations and technologies. We're also finding 
themselves challenging governments to develop frameworks that are inclusive, especially on data and uh, innovation. And policy is part of making history on the wonderful, wonderful work that African women and girls are doing in terms of um, innovation, um, technology, and also being represented in their countries using gender data. You are indeed. I mean, the work that you do is phenomenal. And I'm really fascinated a lot by your research. One that stands out for me, that's a recent research that, that you've done, is looking at a more inclusive internet from the perspective of non-English speakers. You've already spoken about, about how mm -hmm. non-English languages are not um, as, you know, they're not seen on the internet. Now, the white paper that you produced for that research was, was published in Ahmaric, Swahili, Luganda, mm -hmm. and English. Firstly, what was the interest in doing that research? And, and secondly, what, was, what has been the reception of it? Um, so this research came about as a result of a collaboration between policy and a partner organization called the Digital Futures Lab, where we know the, um, rather globally there are over 7,000 languages. However, the internet dominated by a handful. And one of the most mm -hmm. dominating languages on the internet is English. So mm -hmm. policy has lab sought to understand how the proclaimed democratization of the internet is reflected in the experiences of the majority of the users mm -hmm. who do not speak English as their first mm -hmm. language at all. And this, mm -hmm. of course, because many many of us, when you speak about the internet, we, we call it a very wonderful tool, a unifying tool. However, the tool continues to cause uh, additional disparities and additional gaps, such as, of course, the language that um, internet users speak, write, mm -hmm. and how you know, content is produced. Um, and we noted that out of the domination, of course, it affects the understanding, uh, both online and offline. It also affects how people continue to speak to one another and write and also produce content because it um, you know, defines exclusive boundaries or inclusive boundaries on the internet where if you speak a common language, you're able to communicate better However, if we speak different languages, of course, there continues to be disparities and widening of the gap and further leaving out those who are already left out of digital spaces. And then we know that when certain languages are not resourced well online, a wealth of information is continuously unavailable uh, for most of us in the population. If you look at how we do our elections, for instance, I, I love using uh, election examples. When you know, when you look at how our countries are organized into national governments and local governments, you know that at national government level, many countries, most of us in Africa, use the national languages to campaign. And in most cases at the local government level, we use our local languages. So if you're using digital tools, for instance, as your tools of political campaign, then it means if your language is not fully online, there are cases where some of the content is misinterpreted or there are cases where there is literally very poor ways of communicating with your audiences. So in terms of this research, then you can see that 
the internet is really, really, really a powerful tool to ensure that there is um, effective communication and a wealth of information to enable people in society or the population to make better and informed decision. And also really to ensure the diversity we see in our in our everyday lives is also seen online. And to also really provide better experiences for internet users, especially for people whose native or primary languages uh, are not English. So, so the questions we asked ourselves for this research, of course, is to understand the internet experience of users whose primary language is not English, how do these users experience the usability, accessibility, and trustworthiness of these spaces, the digital spaces? And what challenges do they experience or face, and how do they navigate these challenges? And if you look at the example of issues to do with, um, you know, elections and campaigning, you see that then if there are further gaps that are created, especially when it comes to data that is released. Uh, we use both qualitative and a mixed research methodology for this, and we uh, engaged in four countries, of course, in the global south, um, mm. which is Ethiopia, and that's why the report is in Amharic, Tanzania, and that's why the report is in Swahili, Uganda, and that's why, again, the report is in Uganda and India um, between last year, between March and November. And... Uh, of course, the findings uh, are already going a long way uh, to support developers and designers to improve accessibility and inclusivity on digital platforms uh, from different native or local languages. And also from studies we got in, uh, from the four countries to develop, we were able to make or to develop recommendations that facilitate developers' justifications to improve yeah. the ability and inclusivity of these uh, languages to support better digital content. Of course, this go a long way into forming part of that uh, body of or history that I was speaking about in terms of the research work. Research on languages uh, and digital dexterity in Africa, I, I can say, are not as as common, and therefore our research, which is I can uh, our research, our research, which is feminist, is able to look at how things to do with languages and how people speak online continue to create gaps or continue to bridge that gap of bringing ordinarily excluded people uh, to onto the, the internet because yeah. language holds power over who. Who gets to speak, who gets to be heard, who doesn't get to be heard. Now, just to dovetail from that, I, I also found your your research, your Bite Willie's report, which looks at the obstacles women in leadership positions encounter in their political careers. That's also quite interesting. It's a very different you know, angle to look at power, but then ultimately it, it sounds like your feminist analysis is, is about dissecting power in all its different formats and how it, it affects women, technology, society. What, why was that important, that, that research work, to look at you know, the obstacles women in leadership, in politics in particular, are experiencing? So if you look at um, this particular study, it's called the Bite Bullies, um, hmm. the 23 report on online violence against women in politics during elections in Kenya. 
we conducted this research as part of the body of work we are doing on um, social media and elections in Africa, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the wake of the pandemic. I know we have forgotten about the pandemic, but <laughs> since COVID-19, uh, that is March 2020, uh, there have been and there will be more elections where people mm-hmm. are using online heavily on digital tools and particularly social media use. And mm-hmm. when I say I mean the whole ecosystem, which is politicians, the voters, um, the people who will not vote, uh, private yeah. sector, and you know, generally everyone. So doing the re- this research, we specifically looked at how women leaders, uh, and we have one on Uganda as well, use social media platforms to boost their mm-hmm. campaign or to boost their political careers. Because politics is a career just like every other job. And we found that most of the challenges that women politicians face offline in their day-to-day lives, in their communities, in their households, in their families, they face them online because unfortunately, most of the challenges are mirroring themselves into the online world. Um, Where we found, of course, in Kenya as of 2022, January, there were about 12 million social media users, uh, Mm. which was a 7% 7% increment um, in, the, in the, you know, in the wake of the pandemic. And wow. of course, meta also apps... Also, Jimbo had a lot to do with that. I'm just joking. <laughs> but also Majimbo and, and I mean, I love also Majimbo. I mean, she, she, she brought so much source to the internet. So I, I'm just, I'm just giving her her kudos, but continue. Yeah, we need to give flowers. Makes a lot of sense. She yeah. really said um, that internet hype and content creator hype here in Kenya because uh, people are able to see how you can earn a living from, you know, right. just sharing and cracking Tip jokes on that. And wearing sunglasses in your house during lockdown. I'm sorry, that's that's legendary. <laughs> I know. On your, on your couch. Just that. Every day and we think cannot be anything that is converted into monetary gain. For some people, it ended up being a multi-million dollar career. So mm. uh, Facebook, I know Facebook has the highest number of users, obviously, uh, at 10 million. And mm. Twitter remains, of course, and now with the conversion into X, um, it remains lower at about 1.35 million users in Kenya. Um, mm. Of course, politicians heavily relied on these tools, as I had shared, um, to attract more voters, to attract a new generation of voters. There are more newer voters in this Kenyan election than any other election. And of course, that's what will happen in the coming um, elections because there are so many uh, uh, new or there are so many uh, youths who turn 18. Um, mm. And when we got into the work, we found that um, at least... of political active women in Kenya experienced online violence on Twitter, uh, with insults being the most common type of violence. Um, We found that um, violence online was used primarily as an instrument to suppress and exclude women from actively engaging in politics. In fact, uh, some of the smear campaigns were out to target women and to make them stop, you know, vying into 
vying to the different political positions here in Kenya. So those, in a nutshell, the report is on our website. Those are some of the findings that came out of our study. This project um, or this program is something we are trying to expand and trying to work with other organizations and companies in Africa to see how we can use data, uh, yes. especially on uh, abuse, to show that there is a need uh, for unified uh, a unified front against online violence. Otherwise, mm. especially elections, it, if it goes un, uh, unattended, women will continue to be uh, lowly represented on in political yeah. career and women's uh, political dreams really will continue to be uh, suppressed. And it's important to recognize that we all have different dreams. There are those who dream of having big companies that sell different uh, things, but there are those whose dreams are having a political life and leading their societies. So uh, this, these dreams are not unique. Uh, these dreams are, are dreams that should be seen to the... Yeah. And, and dreams that young women who may have them tend to then shy away from because of the ways that they see you know, yeah. this violence being meted out onto older women. So they just say, you know, I'm not going to go into politics. I'm going to go somewhere else. But then that's that's the dream you have. Mm. And in terms of uh, this project, it's very useful because we are able to build uh, lexicons in local languages. Lexicons is where you put together some of the abuses that come out. Mm. Um, on, and these are very useful for uh, social media companies to be able to build onto their uh, broader lexicons and also adding onto, onto, the, onto our project on languages, which mm. have a role to play in terms of supporting designers of these tech companies in um, integrating our local languages online. So when you build these lexicons in Swahili, in Luganda, and other commonly spoken languages, Igbo, Yoruba, uh, they are able to also add on to more languages, uh, local languages, especially from Africa. There's so much other work that policy does. I mean, I'd wanted to discuss as well about your personas, um, your research into personas in technology, in the technology space. Fascinating, but I'll just tell the listeners, please just visit www.policy.org, right? Yes, .org. Yeah. Org and just, you know, there's just so much there. They do such great research. Um, you, you'll find so many different things there. But then I just wanted to get into some of your programs. Um, and, and there's two that I really wanted to focus on. The first one is DataFest. And I'd, I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about DataFest, why it happens, when it happens, and, and what happens at DataFest. Wow. So our annual event at Policy is based off of some of the program and project activities we also implement and we see we need to bring all our communities together uh, to be able to share more and to just open it up for further you know, discussions and challenges. And uh, what happened is that in 2020, we were able to host one uh, in the pandemic. And oh, then wow. of yeah, yeah, that was the first time we hosted wow. um, DataFest, and then we were uh -huh. able to fund it uh, in the next year, in the subse subsequent year, um, mm -hmm. um, into other towns in Uganda, uh, mm -hmm. other cities, rather. Mm -hmm. 
and mm-hmm. as we were you know just as we were carrying on with our work there there grew a huge demand of data fest in other countries and in 2021 was the first time we were able to host it in Lagos Nigeria uh oh. with local part, local partners uh, in Nigeria and then this year um data fest Africa was able to come to Nairobi Kenya so i'm sure you're wondering mm-hmm. so data or data festival africa is the annual event uh, by policy which celebrates data science and its ever evolving impact on the african continent there are numerous data science events in africa we are doing this in support and in full um you know harnessing the work that has already been done by those who came before us and those mm. who are coming up as i had shared and we bring together in the data science events uh, data enthusiasts researchers academia feminists and governments in africa to address mm. the gender and artificial intelligence bias while promoting mm. gender That's, that's really great. Could you tell me a little bit more about your fellowship? It looks like the current cohort is a great mix of forward-thinking technologists. What do you hope comes out of this cohort and others to come? So, um the policy fellowship program at uh, our organization is an opportunity for students to be introduced and young professionals really to be introduced into civitech and research initiatives uh, we do this by allowing them to contribute to the field of knowledge base using their data and research skills and mm-hmm. every float this um opportunity which is six months long at least October or November so it's something that everyone should be on the lookout for this coming October or November uh where we also try and expose these fellows to other civitechs like ourselves innovators uh we give them an opportunity to conduct uh research on topics related to data and civitech uh mm-hmm. and how to different government services and strengthen their capaci- capacities uh in using equitable data and that's the gender data I was talking about mm-hmm. um so our fellows upon joining um are given a stipend and are also mm-hmm. supported with a research fund uh mm-hmm. to conduct a research within the six months and mm-hmm. then to create multimedia products around their research it could be an interview it could be a blog it could be a video and also mm-hmm. supporting developing training material for the different uh problems that they have found in their research and recommendations they are um sharing um they also come in in you know they also come in handy in terms of supporting in the hosting of different events and activities both online and offline as well as collaborating with the communities of practice we have built at policy uh every year aim to recruit at least five fellows um and so far we've managed to uh recruit from over seven countries in africa since policy began the uh fellowship position initially of course it started in kampala however because we are fully remote we've grown we've also added the language base we have had 
francophone fellows um, and hope to see some of the results that they're going to be putting out uh, before October of this year. And that's a wrap from Irene. And thank you so much to Irene for making the time for this uh, episode. Unfortunately, we had a bit of a technical issue towards the end. And so we kind of got cut off abruptly at that point. But as she mentioned, you can follow Policy on Twitter and their Twitter handle is at Policy Org. And that is Policy with a double L. Um, you can also find Policy um, on various social media channels as well, but then you can find their website at www.policy.org. And again, that policy has two L's. So it's P-O-L-L-I-C-Y.org. I really hope that you're going to make use of their different opportunities, including DataFest and the fellowship that Irene mentioned towards the end of this interview. Um, as always, you can find the Digitally Native Podcast on social media as well. Twitter, you can find us at Native Podcast. You can also find us at the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungai Machirori. That's the page name on both LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, otherwise, if you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter where we give a recap of all things digital as well as opportunities and resources, please do head to the Digitally Native Podcast website, which you will find at www.digitallynativepodcast.com and look for the subscribe button and hit that and that will lead you to a, a section where you can add your email address and other details and you will automatically be added to our database. Alrighty, thank you so much for listening. I look forward to having you um, as my audience for the next podcast episode. Until then, please do take care of yourself and be a little bit more forgiving to yourself, even if the world isn't um, giving you a break. You deserve one. Alrighty, see you next time. <laughs>